Bing, see? Two bings that time. Hey, and welcome to Hey All You Zombies, uh, our weekly podcast where we talk about many things, but increasingly we've been talking about The Walking Dead. For very good reason. I think this past uh, weekend we had the best, one of the best episodes in the entire series. Yeah. You would agree, yeah. right? Well, it was. I mean, uh, you know, I'm Richard Krause, Chris Abel. Yeah. Uh, I do agree. And I, I agree because it seemed to me to be the perfect mix between uh, some cool zombie kills, which there's been like so many of this year on the show. I was, I'm not, I'm not getting tired of them, but I wanted more. And this show gave us lots more. This show, um, uh, and it's, there's spoilers. There's gonna be spoilers all through this. So if you haven't seen it, do this for the next few minutes. Um, this show uh, reintroduced an old character that everybody was wondering what had happened to. Um, it shed some light on Rick's mental state. It, it took us to places I didn't expect it to go. Uh, Carl, little Carl, has turned into an interesting character. I didn't see it. Michonne's character actually uh, showed a different side. I mean, there was so much going on. It was a fantastic week. But it wasn't just about killing zombies. It was about the characters again. And you need these episodes every now and again so that you care when things happen to them. Oh, I completely agree. Uh, yes, and so uh, for those who may be listening to this episode a little bit later on, because it's recorded and offered for months in advance, the episode that we're talking about is titled Clear, and it's all about uh, Rick, Michon, and uh, um, the little boy. What's his name again? Carl. Carl. All Carl. Uh, they all go on a bit of a field trip. So it's that particular episode that we're referring to. If you haven't seen it, by all means, um, you can wait. This podcast is going to be available on our YouTube account as well as our Mixcloud and iTunes accounts. You can always listen to it a little bit later. We are going to get in-depth on it. Uh, my name is Chris Abel. I'm a tech reviewer here in Canada. And uh, on the other side, where Pi had a little tiger named Richard Parker in his boat, here in our boat on the web internet, we have film critic Richard Krause. Welcome. Um, yeah, I got to tell you, this uh, this episode uh, was was um, really fascinating to me, and it was fascinating to see Morgan again. Now, I don't know. Again, we talk about this every week, but I haven't read the books, and so I wasn't sure whether we would ever see him again. But he was such an important character in the first couple of episodes, all that time ago, you know, a long time ago when the, the series first started, that I was wondering if we would ever see him again. And uh, sure enough, just when this show I thought couldn't surprise me anymore or couldn't, you know, do uh, uh, something that kind of rocked me, all of a sudden this character that we haven't seen for two years pops up again. And it was fantastic. Yeah. And it would be fair to think that, you know, to make that expectation that we wouldn't see him because Morgan is part of the first season, which was a different showrunner, different bunch of people making that show. Yep. And, you know, there were lots of things that they were setting up in that season that sort of got left off because new people took over the show and began a whole new series. So it would be fair to think that you would never, ever hear of Morgan again. And so wonderful that they did go back. And I think that, uh, you know, um, it, it totally validated doing so because it just made the series that more interesting to go back and check out that story. Right. Well, and the story is important because if you don't remember, Morgan is the person who essentially saved Rick's life and, you know, uh, was, was such an important part of that first part. But now he is living in different circumstances. Uh, he, uh, his, his wife ate his child. 
uh, wife turned into a zombie, ate his child, and, uh, you know, understandably, he's not in the best mental state. He's living uh, in what looks to be the old town that they used to live in, kind of in the town square, in the main drag, uh, on the second floor of a building that he has fortified. He's zombie-proofed it. Uh, so there are sharp sticks, like sort of like teepees almost, only with sharpened sticks that the zombies just sort of walk into and impale themselves on. Uh, he has an arsenal, uh, enough for 25 people, uh, up on the second floor of this building. Doesn't seem shy about shooting off rounds of ammunition uh, at randomly, but he's alone. And uh, as you sort of see more of where he lives, uh, and it was, I thought, done fairly cleverly because we don't find out who he is right away. He's wearing a mask and body armor and things. So then we find out who he is. They take him inside, and there's writing all over the walls, and there's, you know, there's, there's all the signs of someone who's been alone just a little bit too long. And uh, um, what, I, what I thought was so great about this episode um, is that it, it gave us a, a, a chance, or gave Rick a chance, to stare into the ugly abyss of what could have been his life if things had taken, if he had, you know, gone this way instead of this way. And uh, I think that we're going to see a, a greater understanding from Rick from this point on about his mental state. I think he's going to understand it more or at least find a different way to deal with it than he has been. I, I'm not sure that we're going to see him running off after apparitions anymore that only appear in his mind. I think that this is the episode uh, which is like a turning point, a hinge in the in the series that we're going to that that will change his relationship with himself because he's seen what it could have been. It's like uh, a Christmas Carol or one of those things where you sort of it's the ghost of Christmas future staring at him, showing him what could have happened, and uh, and I think that this will have a huge impact on everything that comes afterwards. I got so excited when they went over that ridge. And you could see the town and you could see all, not just the barriers, but also the writing that's on the right. sidewalk, you know, all the, you know, turn around if you want to live and, and all that in the towers and the color coded ladders. It looked like a Japanese game show. It was right. just insanely dangerous and, and just so, but exciting just because for once we're, we're visually seeing an environment unlike anything that we've seen before. It's been very tried and true, you know, whether it's the farm or whether it's the prison. Uh, most of the, the, the backgrounds that we've seen have been kind of things that you can instantly recognize. Oh, that's a suburban street. Oh, that's a prison cell block. Where's this? This was like, what is this? This is interesting. This is, you know. Well, he had, like, if you haven't seen it, he, it seems like he had little traps with dead chickens or dogs or something living in them. ones yeah well living ones but there were i think some of them were dead some of them were dead and some cut open i thought i don't know to attract zombies to these weird uh spear apparatuses that he had set up so that they would go oh food and walk into them and sort of be impaled there and you know they the, that that's what he apparently spends his days doing because there's no one else in town uh you really get a sense that this, you know, once quaint little town that had a sheriff and another couple of police officers that you know, sort of look after things uh, was completely devastated. Uh, little Carl wants to go to the local restaurant. Looks like, a, you know, your typical kind of American family restaurant in a small town. There's, uh, I think it looked to me like there were, you know, uh, uh, you know, like a Western theme kind of inside the restaurant. 
and there were photographs everywhere up above the bar. And so he's determined to get there. You don't really know why. And then, of course, you understand why when he goes up on top of the bar, grabs a picture, and it's him and his mother and father in better days. And he wants this to give to his sister uh, uh, because she would never, of course, have have seen or knew anything about her mother as she grows up. And uh, so, but you really got the sense of this town that had just been completely once a, a thriving little quaint little community and just completely gone. And of course, you know, when they go into the restaurant, there's zombies just kind of like languidly hanging over the furniture as though they're just sitting there waiting for something human or alive to come by that they can, you know, get up and eat. That was a really strange tableau, that little cafe, because the moment that he wipes uh, away the the dust on the window and looks inside, it's as if everybody died in the middle of having a meal. Yeah, yeah. It was an odd kind of thing, because, of course, that wouldn't have happened. People would have had to have been bitten in order to... But it's as if the zombies have, in a sense, um, gone back and sort of sat down with some sort of leftover memory and are kind of repeating their, their past, which is odd because we've had that suggestion in before. Uh, you know, uh, obviously Morgan's wife, the fact that she keeps right. coming back to their front door has that aspect. Yet later on, when the governor's doing his experiments, everybody says, no, there's, there's no trace of, of anything, and that's what he was looking for. So it's interesting that they keep bringing that back. But it was an odd thing to see all the zombies at the tables, in the booths, as if it was like a Mexican bar, everybody's having a siesta, yeah. and the moment they open the door, it's like, all right, let's wake up. And <laughs> Well, you know, maybe there's going to be different stratas of zombies. Maybe there will be the ones that have some more cognitive thought and, you know, have a, a vague idea of what life was like before, and so they would go back and sit in the restaurant, and then there'll be the others that are just mindless creatures that are, are driven by, you know, this this quest for food that they have. Just moving forward and reacting to any kind of sound that they hear. Yeah, it's, it was uh, what I liked. One of the things that we've talked about in the past is sort of the the need for more atmosphere. And right. I know when you, you've said it, you referenced The Shining. You mentioned how it would be just, I think, from a visual sense of, of, of creating more of a sense of suspense or horror yeah. through atmosphere. Uh, and I think they kind of achieved it in this episode, but in a very different way. And that what I liked, there were so many little tiny details, little tiny visual cues that sort of have their own little story. There were three that really stood out for me that I saw. I, I just, I loved. I love that as they're approaching the town and they get attacked by those zombies in the car, one of the zombies has a little... Um, yeah, has a little, yeah, yeah, that was good. That was really good. And it was, it was subtle, but not, it was subtle for television, let's just say, because television, you know, can't, be as subtle as a movie can be because when you're in a movie theater you're watching on a screen that's you know this big and so a flash of something tends to register more than a flash on television which on a much smaller screen goes by fairly quickly so it was a little kind of like uh, right in front of you for a second so you get a chance to have a look at it and then they pull it away but that's pretty subtle for television and that worked really well so you have this person who that morning when they got up put on their little bracelet, their mm. little funny little bracelet with their name on it, you know? And uh, and then by the end of the day, it was a dead person and a zombie. And that was a great moment. That was a, a great subtle little moment to to show kind of the real horror of what had happened. Yeah, much better than having, you know, some character stand there and deliver a speech about, hey, you got to remember, these 
used to be people once upon a time or something along those lines. You don't have to do that. One little glance of a little tiny prop is yeah. all enough to kind the, of get the, that the thought. Best things in movies, my favorite things in movies and on television too, but it, mostly it happens in the movies, are these silent moments that tell you everything you need to know about a character or a situation without Mr. Exposition coming in and telling you everything that you need to know. Uh, one of my favorites is in um, uh, Lost in Translation. And Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson, it's the scene where she's wearing that little pink wig, and uh, they've been out all night, and uh, they've been in the karaoke bar, and they've done the whole thing. And then there's just a shot of them sitting, and she's got her head on his shoulder, and it's silent. It is a beautiful little moment, and the thing that's great about it is that it is a non-sexual moment. It tells you what the relationship is like, that she's comfortable enough around him to sort of, you know, put her head on his shoulder and that sort of thing, but he's not, like, grabbing at her. He's not doing it. It, it, it was a, a great picture uh, with no words of what goes on, what was going on with them at that moment, what the relationship was all about. It was fantastic. And, uh, you know, that's the same as that. I think it said Aaron on it, that little, that little, I, I might be wrong, but I think it said the name Aaron. And that was, it's that same kind of thing where you have this little flash that tells you a great deal or, or gives you information or lets you know something about the character or the situation uh, that, that instead of having someone put it into words, that is cinematic. And that's what this show needs more of. Mm -hmm. There's a, a second one to look for. I don't know if you you, you saw it, um, but as they enter the town or that street, there's a moment where Rick throws himself up against the, the wall of a red brick building. Yeah. And he's just gently looking around the corner. And um, now he's sort of down in the background of the shot, and the foreground is the, the rest of the red brick wall. Right. So that we can see him coming up the red brick wall. And just uh, about a, two and a half feet away from the camera, on the wall, there's a bit of motion, and it's a little grasshopper that's oh, clinging wow. to the brick. Yeah. And uh, it's wonderful because it's it's there still. And then as as Rick starts coming, it slowly starts inching up a couple of inches. Right. Uh, and I don't know if that is pure accident. Yeah. A, a grasshopper happened to land on the wall while they were shooting, and they decided let's just keep that in. Or if someone had enough sense to go over and see a grasshopper and just cup it in his hands and sort of put it on the wall and say, okay, roll. Yeah. Go. Well, because they do shoot. I mean, this isn't shot on a back lot. This is shot uh, in, you know, in Georgia. Georgia, in yeah. Georgia somewhere. And it's hot and it's kind of tropical. And there probably are grasshoppers and all that kind of thing just hopping around. So, but yeah, I didn't see that, but that's cool. Yeah, land in that key little spot. I thought yeah. it was really brilliant. And then just all the, the little writing. They must have had a lot of fun. Um, one of the details I liked was as they start to enter his place and they begin to notice the, the booby traps, which I have to say, I wouldn't enter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I might have I thought twice about that. Yeah, yeah I thought that kid was going to – I thought Carl was going to – because he wasn't – didn't look like he was really paying attention as he was running around. Yeah. No, it wasn't like there was a, hey, Carl, you know, this, this welcome mat, you got to be a little careful walking over it yeah. or anything like that. But um, as they go up the stairwell, and uh, they're, they're wise enough to see the little tripwire, and they go over top of it, and then they come in and realize what was waiting for them, that big axe that sort of yeah, hanging from yeah. the ceiling. It had blood on it, which, yeah. was great, which was a great little detail. It's like, this booby trap has worked in the past. This has gotten someone, this, which I thought was fantastic. Well, and that's what I love. I love that this whole th episode suggests other stories, that this isn't a case that Morgan simply lost his son and has been there 
going crazy right. ever since. No, other people have been in that street. He, the fact that he has so many guns suggests that in the past year, a lot has happened that we just simply aren't privy to. But no, absolutely. Really because they, they go to the armory at the old police station thinking, okay, well, we'll find, you know, a few guns here and there's nothing left. But it's fairly small. Then you go up to Morgan's place. Man, there's a lot of guns. So they didn't just come from there. There is no. something. He's been collecting them somehow, getting them, I don't know where, but he's got what looked like hundreds of guns or, or you know, at least dozens and dozens of guns. So, yeah, that wasn't just a, a small-town police department's worth of uh, firearms. Oh, no. And what I like is that uh, along the handle of that axe that's hanging from the ceiling, dripping with all the blood and gore, are the words, I told you so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, all that stuff I thought was cool because, you know, you've got a, a person who's there alone desperately alone so what do you do i mean i suppose if it's long enough if you've been there long enough um if you have seen enough things that have you know caused your mind to snap you maybe you talk to the to the pen you know maybe you talk to the you know you, you start to sort of things start to take on a personality like the axe handle you know and that kind of thing because of course by the time anyone sees that it's embedded in their foreheads. So there's no, you know, there's no reason to put it there other than, you know, shits and giggles. You know, there, there's no reason to put that on there except to amuse yourself. Or maybe it helps him cope a little bit when he has to clean up. So yeah, maybe. I told you so. It's right, right there. Yeah, yeah, maybe that's it. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, what did you think of Michon this weekend? I really liked what they've done. Uh, the, the whole idea of having her. Oh, uh, they did it to her, too. Yeah, the whole idea of having her go off with Carl and yeah. allowing that to be a case where she gets to prove herself because it just seems to be completely unfair the way that they have um, judged her. You know, yeah. they, 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 the phrase at one point Carl repeats, he's heard it from his dad, but he's heard it from his dad about other people at the prison. And here he is saying, well, we share the common enemy, share in common interest, and that's the only reason that she's around. But all of that is something that you know, is equal to Merle. So right. you begin to realize in this episode that they've been seeing Merle and Michonne as almost being uh, in the same sort of category of right. being people you, you really can't trust, which is a very appropriate in the case of Merle, but Michonne is wildly uh, unfair. So, Yeah, I thought so. And, and it, it really showed uh, a very human side of her that we haven't seen yet. You know, she has been someone who has only, up until this point, reacted to things. Zombie, boom, kill it. Uh, you know, she gets mad and leaves the, the go she and Andrea have a falling out because she doesn't try Michonne doesn't trust the governor. So she leaves the town and, and, uh, goes back, but it's always been reacting. It's always just been stepping away or into a situation rather than, um, being someone and, and rarely ever speaking. She hasn't had that many lines now, all of a sudden in this episode, she turns out to be okay. She actually seems to care for the little boy. Mm -hmm. uh, she is not going to let him get killed um, or just run off and do whatever the hell he wants. And, and I thought that was really uh, uh, a, a nice switch for this character. It kind of came out of nowhere, frankly. I mean, they could have worked up to this a bit more, but they didn't. And, but I will accept it. I will take it because I've wanted something to happen with that character. The, the women, the female characters on this show um, are interesting, but they're not always, I don't think, treated on an equal level with the men. And yet here you have this character who can fight and, you know, attack zombies with the best of any of them and you don't give her any lines. 
and often she's just in the background. Like, you know, you want to, she could be a superhero. She could be the superhero of this series, uh, a, a figure for, you know, uh, young women watching to identify with. And it's cool. She's got a ninja sword. It's all, you know, like it's got all the pieces, right? It's got all the stuff that you want. And yet they were grotesquely underusing her. So maybe, you know, this time uh, after this, it, it seems like they've gone too far not to do something interesting with her now. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, what I liked was if you're going to give a character samurai swords, then you really need to kind of also give them a bit of the attitude and the the, the subtle intelligence that kind of goes along with it. Yeah. And there was a bit of uh, Toshiro Mufun there. With, yeah. Here they are. They're freaked out. They've had to go buy all these. You know, somebody just took a, a shot at them with a sniper rifle. They've got to get past all these booby traps. They're in this room. There's writing everywhere. Everybody's freaked out. And yet you hear off camera. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's yeah. And it's completely casual, just sitting there munching away. And while she's chewing, she lightly handles that situation with Carl, saying, well, you know, you're going to need the box. You're going to need the help. And, and, and doing it in a way that Rick picks up on, Carl picks up on. Nobody really says anything, but everybody sort of understands how the situation plays out. And she sort of, you know, takes care of it in a very light, nonchalant kind of way. And I think that that's very true to that kind of character. If you're going to walk around with a pair of, of samurai swords on you, you're going to have to sort of be nonchalant and sort of just subtly influence the situation and do yeah. so in a, you know, in a very non-confrontational way. Yeah, no, there's certainly an attitude that goes along with it. And, and I think that hopefully we'll see more from her. That's, I mean, one of the reasons I think that, you know, what I was saying earlier about Rick finally, maybe, uh, the, you know, see, having a look at what his life might've become will change things. I think Michonne's character now will change things again for her. I mean, this this episode hopefully will be the beginning of really utilizing that that character as a as a, a um, something more than just a, a plot point from this point on, and actually giving her something to do. Yeah, I I, I think what we've seen a lot is is sort of. The writing has tended to try to be as as plain as possible. If a person has a problem with another person, then they stand there and just sort of shout at each other. Um, whereas, you know, in this scene, what we saw was some very crafty writing in terms of, of characters handling things in a very smooth kind of way. I love, I don't really believe that Michonne loved that stupid cat sculpture. Yeah, I, yeah. I love, yeah. No, <laughs> right? right, but that was a nice little thing that, yeah, that that was her way of sort of trying to smooth over the fact that she understood Carl wanted to go in and handle yeah. this himself. There was no way that that was going to happen. He was yeah. way outnumbered. Uh, and so I love the fact that as she came in thinking at the same time, how do I deal with Carl that she saw that grabbed it and then came out and that gave him kind of an excuse to understand why he yeah. allowed her to kind of go in Well, she got something out of it too. Yeah. She wanted that cat sculpture, which she didn't want that cat sculpture. Not really, but in the way that she did it, you know, oh, this gorgeous thing, there's <laughs> yeah, no yeah. way I could just kind of leave it behind. Come on, you know. Uh, I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it was a good show. It was a good show. And as I say, like, you know, so often, uh, particularly in the first half of the third season, so many shows were just about killing zombies. I mean, that's all they did. They were just, you know, they were on the road again. And then, you know, an hour of And don't get me wrong. I love that, but yeah. they, but you can't just have that, you know. Yeah. You the show just can't be that, and you know the the beauty of the second season, which is you know for my money not my favorite, not my favorite season, but the beauty of it 
uh, is that you got to know the characters and you got to care about the characters. So then in the third season, when they started killing them off and that sort of thing, or, you know, when one of them loses their leg, half their leg, then you, you know, you care about them. So it was important to have that second season. I was, I have been wondering a little bit along the way here as, you know, uh, Rick goes more and more over the edge. Michonne's not saying anything. Uh, they're killing more and more characters off. Uh, Herschel can't really get around and, and, and therefore has less to do. Uh, the baby seems to have kind of almost disappeared. From, I mean, you see it every now and again. But, but I was wondering, what is going to be the thing that gets us to care about these people again? You know, because in, in a third season or, or the remainder of the third season, into the fourth season, you have to still be on side with these characters. Otherwise, you don't care so much when bad stuff happens to them or when good stuff happens to them. And I think this episode was the perfect mix of giving us more about the characters, keeping it rich with the characters, but also uh, giving us the, the, the zombie kills that we want as well. Yeah, it helps when you can create a situation and then you reveal something about the characters as they try to, to deal with the situation. And those can be very large scale. They can be very small. I really, really love the use of, of rats uh, in that cafe. I thought that was just a brilliant and beautiful setup. They, here they are. They've got this plan. Again, it's something I've been looking for is I want to see characters planning. Because yeah. when you plan, things can go wrong. Things can right. go right. You're, you know, All sorts of things can set up. And so how wonderful was that sequence where they throw in the skateboards with little rats in cages Right. And, and, you know, here they are. They're giving you information that you can kind of put together in your own head. We can see that the, the zombies are going after rats. And we immediately think we know what the threat is going to be, that there's one zombie that right. no one's paying attention to. He's behind the bar. Uh, you know, they finally deal with him very carefully. Uh, and then as they turn on the corner, you're surprised by seeing a rat that's not in a cage just running around on the floor. And without really having to explain what has happened instantly, you know, in your mind, you're like two plus two equals 14. Oh my gosh. They're, you know, and then just all breaks loose. And I just, I love that. I love that whole sequence. I thought it was so smart and so crafty the way they planned it out. In my head, it was like a, a grenade rolling towards you. This little rat coming. Cause you know, you can't run the rat and you know, the zombies are going to come after the rat. So, you, you know, you're almost, you know, what it's you crap. Do? What do you do? Yeah. I, well, we, uh, hopefully there'll be more of that. Now, see, I don't know. Greg Mazzara, who is the showrunner right now, is leaving them. Yeah. I just don't get this. I don't get what what is going. I mean, maybe you know, maybe nobody wants to be stuck in Georgia running the show. Maybe that's it. Maybe, maybe I don't get it. I mean, this third season has been so good. Has been so so good. Um, that would to me buy. You know, I would want that guy back. I would want. This this show is on a roll now, a very serious role. I can't imagine that you would want him gone. Yeah, I don't understand, and it's not like um, I mean, typically when you start eliminating people, it should be when things are going poor with the show. Yeah. Well, I should say that, but that's not always true. Uh, you know, when when ratings are bad, yes, yeah. bring in somebody else. But ratings are good. Ratings are very very good. Yeah, I mean, well, you you can tell that ratings are good when you have. You know, the, the, even the, when they're rerunning old episodes, but in black and white, and people are watching, you can tell you've got a hot show in advance, you know? Yeah. So I'm not quite sure what's going on there. Uh, but obviously, whoever it is, whether it's the showrunner or somebody else that's involved in the show, whether it's Robert Kirkman, maybe he's got a heavier hand than, than anybody thinks, uh, despite the fact he's got what, two or three other comic books he's writing at the same time. That's right, yeah. Uh, 
Yeah. <laughs> but they're doing an excellent job. I'm, I'm fully committed now to the series. I've been kind of wonky on it uh, for the last two episodes. The fact they took an entire episode to kind of deal with the story arc that involves Andrea and yeah. her sort of reaching a point where eyes are, are wide open uh, to now getting this wonderful way of trying to deal with Rick and his issues as well as me, Sean, and Carl. Because, I, you know, I really, if I was going to sit and watch Rick talk to an apparition just one more time, I thought just horrible. But here... Here he finally has someone that he can talk to and yeah. see uh, his own madness kind of outside of himself and finally get a bit of a, a healthy perspective on it. Yeah, no, I think so too. And that's what made this episode so so important, I think. Um, have you noticed that there's uh, more swearing on the show? No, okay. In the last couple of episodes, there has there's been more swearing. Well, there's been swearing. And I don't recall that from the earlier episodes. Maybe I've just uh, not noticed it. But in the last couple of episodes, there's been more swearing. Uh, Andrea's bum. We saw Andrea's bum. It's almost all of a sudden like it's becoming, uh, again, it's becoming something else again. And I just wonder uh, uh, about these choices. I mean, it's not a family show by any stretch of the imagination. But it's, it, 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 it kind of struck me that some of these things seemed a little unnecessary. That could be. And I'm not approved. Listen, I'm no. not. But <laughs> yeah, and I don't know what what direction that is coming from. Uh, whether it's a, a case of somebody saying it has to be more edgier, or just simply, you know, again, um, trying to make it seem more like uh, a graphic novel, because yeah. that is kind of standard, you know, in, in graphic novels today. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I've I've just noticed it every now and again, and when you know you're watching. Uh, you know, something, I mean, it's, it's cable. It's, well, is it cable? It's AMC. It's AMC. It's cable. Is that cable. Yeah, it's cable. Uh, you know, you pay for it, I guess. So, I mean, maybe that's where they, they've got, but it's on at nine o'clock. It's usually after 10, I think that you can start with the, with the swearing. So mm -hmm. every time I hear it, I'm like, really, am I hearing that on this show? Because it just seems like such a mainstream kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Um, it's surprising. Or, or something that you would typically have as being character specific. You could see yeah. Merle cursing a, a blue streak, but maybe not, um, you know, Rick or. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and the fact, I think that I haven't really noticed it up until the last couple of episodes. Hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Okay. That's neat. Well, what did you think of the use of uh, Tom Waits in the last episode? Well, there's nothing wrong ever in the world with using Tom Waits uh, in, in anything. More people should be using Tom Waits. Um, and it was funny. I loved how they had uh, the young girl singing, you know, uh, the yeah. song. And then and then it goes into Tom Waits' version. And it's such a beautiful song. Hold on. It's such a beautiful song. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, if there was a singer that was probably meant to be the soundtrack to The Walking Dead, it's probably Tom Waits who, you know, who uh, says things like, I like to tell terrible stories with beautiful melodies. You know, and I think that's maybe, you know, that kind of sums it up for me. I love that he was there. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's an unexpected song because it's not usually the kind of song that you can put on the music from the Walking Dead soundtrack on iTunes. It's, a, you know, a, not a marketing choice. Yeah. It's a poetic choice yeah. and really a great one. Uh, and, and not a lot of people sort of recognize Tom Waits, but it fit perfectly and what a wonderful you know you're right about the transition because the moment that she starts singing it it sounds like it's an old hymn it sounds like something that she uh had learned on the farm and that they would sing for each other and then it becomes a tom Waits song which is something uh an animal that's very very different but very uh you know appropriate for an end of world kind of scenario beautiful
Oh, listen, I've been a Tom Waits fan forever. And, and uh, you know, he is someone, he pops up here and there, uh, I guess, on things, on his soundtracks and that sort of thing. But uh, I was really thrilled to hear that song at the end of that episode, which is a week ago now. Um, wasn't this week, but the week before. Um, loved it. Loved it. Well, I should mention that uh, on our last episode, I asked a question of... Um, looks like somebody's tweeting us. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I asked the question of whether anyone uh, liked Rick or Andrea, that this was something I sort of felt was a problem with the show. You have two main characters, and those are the two. They're also the two main characters in the comic book. And yet my sense was that I was having a hard time finding anyone who kind of liked those two characters. And so when I asked that question, uh, we did get some responses on uh, Twitter. Uh, Kevin wrote to me and said, Rick is the homie. Without him, the group wouldn't survive. And I couldn't care less about Andrea. Hmm. Uh, And then... Also, we had Willie write into us and say, you know, I like Rick, yet Andrea is pretty but very ungrateful. Interesting. See, I don't know if I feel that she's ungrateful. I mean, she was a lawyer in her previous life, you know, and, and, and before the zombie plague happened. She was a lawyer, and I think that gives her a, a, a different outlook, maybe. You know, she weighs all the options. She thinks about things differently than, than uh, maybe some of the other characters do. She doesn't react just as emotionally, although she's doing that now a little bit with her, her treatment of the governor. You know, there was a, she had a moment where she was going to slit his throat. It looked like, again, this is a spoiler if you haven't seen it. And then she, you know, as he lays there, and he's obviously, I think she knows or everybody else knows, he's an evil man. And she's got the knife right sort of at his throat, he, she could do it and get away with it. It would happen. And, uh, and she doesn't do it. And it's not like she hasn't killed people before. No. It's not like it's a, you know, this would be such an outrageous stretch for her. But something happened, something twigged, like she's in love with him. Or she's, she maybe, you know, she's thinking it's okay to kill zombies, but this guy isn't, even though he's evil, you know, I still believe that maybe from my old life as a lawyer that he deserves a trial and doesn't deserve to be executed or whatever the hell it is. I don't know, but I expect we'll find out in the next couple of episodes. Well, I think the telltale there is the conversation that happened between Andrea and Carol that uh, Carol is interesting because they've given her some, some throwaway lines that that are kind of pregnant with a lot of importance where she's in an earlier episode, Carol was speaking to one of the girls and talked about how she's changed. She's no longer the woman that she was at the beginning, at the very beginning of the series, she was somebody who was being abused. She was in a very abusive relationship. And now she's sort of coming into her own. She's a little bit more independent and seems to be choosing healthier relationships yeah. in terms of who to, to be involved with. But there's a moment where she's having a conversation and she's saying... Although oh, you wouldn't have imagined that Daryl would be the healthy choice no. uh, you know, earlier on in the season. Yeah. No, but, and she speaks about how, you know, would she so easily slip back into that pattern of abuse again. She speaks right. about Merle as being the kind of guy where they can get into your head and they can make you feel worthless. And, and that's so easy to slip into. So it was an interesting choice when Andrea came back and everybody kind of tried to approach uh, Andrea with the, the same argument. You know, the governor's a bad guy. We have to kill him. You know, why can't you understand this? That she kind of slid up as being someone who could kind of understand. And without really saying a lot, just said, can you do me a favor? Can you just sleep with this guy, give him the night of his life, and yeah, then just kill him? Yeah. And it was kind of a moment that was meant to be one woman talking to another woman who both share the same problem, that they tend to 
get sucked into these really destructive relationships. And it's her way of sort of trying to talk, almost like she would talk to herself, giving the words that would give her the strength to do what, what was needed to be done. And yet she didn't do it. And yet she didn't do it at the very last minute. I know. I well, know. he's TV. I mean, he's a great character. He's, he's going to be around for a while. But something's going to happen to him eventually. I mean, the, the, the whole season now seems to be uh, drawing towards a conclusion, which I think is going to be uh, like an Alamo-style shoot -em up between the prison people and the Woodbury people. I mean, I don't see any other way that this is going to go yeah it'll be interesting i mean uh, i expect that there's a couple of characters who are being set up for uh, a very uh, dismal end for the unemployment line yes <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're getting to the point where there are certain characters who uh you know we all know everyone at some point is, is probably going to end their lives but some more interesting than others and there's certain characters that are being lined up that kind of you're hoping milton is an interesting guy who i think is going to come to a very perhaps ironic end uh, at some point. So you've got characters like that. I don't know what's going to happen to the governor, but I mean, part of the issue is you can't have uh, a villain like the governor stick around too long because it, it, it takes up space from you being able to introduce new threats and new villains that are far more interesting. Yeah, no, he's a, he's a one arc villain. You know, he's like the show Dexter, right? They, you know, Dexter has for, for each series, for each, you know, year long series, uh, they have one bad guy, and then Dexter kills him at the end. That's how it works, and you know what it's building towards. And you know, I don't know if there's been one yet that has come back from another uh, from another season. I don't think so. I haven't watched for a couple of seasons. Maybe there has, but that's what that's what the the, the thing is. And I do think that soon there's only so many kind of evil things that that people will want to see, and they, they don't necessarily have to kill him, but he has to run off and go into exile or something. And then, you know, maybe if, you know, the, the fans want more in another season or so, he can come back with another army or something that he's built. He'll come back. What they should do, he should get a zombie army. Go away somewhere. Go to Alaska and get a recruit a zombie army and come back. Well, you're, you're not too far off because this was an issue, a problem that I felt was going to be an issue for the comic book series. Right. I thought, you know, at a certain point, this can't keep going. Yeah. He has to kind of, I mean, I don't know how long this story can, you know, can perpetuate itself. Yeah. And he, he does at some point in the, the comic book series introduce a Genghis Khan like character. Someone that they, throughout their little tiny dramas that have been happening have been on a small scale. Meanwhile, out in the real world, you have stuff that's happening on a much significantly larger scale. Right. Uh, right now, the conflict that we see here between Rick's gang and sort of the governors has kind of been on equal footing. The governor's right. a little bit more, has more resources, but in terms of their cunning, in terms of their, their toughness, the two groups are kind of the same. I mean, the governor's in charge of a bunch of henchmen, but yeah. Rick has a bunch of specialists like Daryl and Michonne on the side. So they're kind of equal. The, it, if they follow along the books with the, the comic books, it's going to get to a point where the scale is going to change and, and they're going to be vastly outnumbered, outgunned, outsmarted by, you know, even bigger threats. And that's where things, you know, uh, manage to still stay uh, interesting while keeping going forward. Right. Right. Hmm. Well, I think uh, th there's going to be, I mean, now the, the Rick and, and company, have enough weaponry to keep them going for a while. That was uh, that was the issue before. They didn't have enough guns. Now they have enough guns. Now they so have plenty of guns. Something is going to happen. I love how Michonne is handed a bag of guns and she sort of slings it on her arm like a purse. 
you know, yeah, it was some interesting stuff. Well, that that's cool. I can't wait for for next week. Um, yeah. So, uh, did you have any plans? Or anything else that you wanted to talk about this week? Um, just you know, just uh, some some kind of housekeeping stuff. Uh, you know, usually I just sort of talk about cool stuff that I've done. This was pretty cool. Um, that's me with Michael McGowan, who is the guy wearing the uh, black jacket. Uh, and Michael McGowan is the director of a movie called Still Mine. And uh, on the other side is the star of the movie, James Cromwell. And so I interviewed him this afternoon. And uh, he was amazing. Uh, you know, Michael is a, is, a, is a great Canadian filmmaker and has made a, a really interesting movie based on a true story about a guy called Craig Morrison in New Brunswick whose wife uh, was suffering from Alzheimer's. And so he's got this enormous farm and uh, they lived in a house for 60 years. He's in his eighties, lived in this house for 60 years, uh, but it had two floors and, and it was just getting unworkable for them to live in uh, because of her uh, diminishing memory and, uh, and you know, just physical demands. They just couldn't do this. So he says, you know what? This has been our home where we've raised our kids. We've done everything we've done here. But I'm gonna just—we've got two thousand acres. I'm gonna build me. I'm gonna build another house all on one level, and and tailor it to her. She would be in a wheelchair, like she needed to to to, or maybe not in a wheelchair. Whatever she needed, she needed to be in a more contained uh, space that was built to suit her needs. So he builds it for her, except that even though it's on his own property, even though he had built houses in the past, even though his father was a shipbuilder and taught him how to build things, probably to a standard of which most condos in Toronto aren't built today. Uh, the government gets involved and says, well, you can't build this house. We're going to bulldoze it because it, and, uh, and it, 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 I won't give away the end, uh, but it's a really touching, wonderful uh, drama based on this true story uh, that happened in New Brunswick. And James Cromwell is fantastic in it. He is, uh, you know, he's an imposing guy. You see from that photograph I just yeah. showed, I'm 6'3", and he's looming over me. And, uh, but he, he was fascinated with this. So we talked about uh, the new movie. And we talked about, you know, how he came to shoot this very low-budget movie here in Canada, you know, when he's concurrently doing work like uh, Boardwalk Empire and all sorts of other things. And, uh, and, and I said, well, I think one of the reasons that maybe you were drawn to this script was that uh, you have always been involved in very progressive kind of causes. Ever since he was a, in, in the 1960s, he was, you know, working with... Uh, uh, very progressive causes, and I, th and I said, I think that the idea that, um, you know, this was about kind of slapping down big government and, and telling them to get the hell out of your life probably appealed to you. And he said, well, maybe I don't think I was smart enough to read the, you know, it was sort of a very self-deprecating way. I don't think I was smart enough to see it in the script right away, but you're probably right. Reminds me of when I was working with the Black Panthers, and I'm like, James Cromwell, you worked with the Black And he told me, and I, I can't tell you now, there are lots of names, lots of details, in, in the in this will air on my radio show in early May when the when the movie actually comes out. He tells an incredible story about working with the Black Panthers in New York in the 1960s, and you know this is the guy who was Stretch Cunningham on All in the Family, who sure. was Battle Do Pig, you know, from yeah. the Babe uh, movies and Star Trek. You know, he just everything, right? This guy is everywhere. Uh, he is the ubiquitous James Cromwell, L.A. Confidential, an amazing movie, American Horror Story. I mean, he's, 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 the guy is everywhere. And uh, he was a really, really gracious, uh, interesting, fascinating guest. I loved talking to him this morning. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, it was a cool way to spend the morning because, you know, so often in, in you know, these situations, you don't get very much time with people. But uh, uh, for the radio show, 
I need, you know, I need at least half an hour. Otherwise, we can't really do anything much with it. And we were able to uh, to get him to come in for that amount of time. And it was it was fantastic. He was he was great. And the people in the studio, as he walked through, and you 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 you're on the same radio station. It's a maze, right? There's there's lots of corners, and but it's all windows, right? All the studios are all windows, and you can you can see kind of through the whole place. And people were seeing him. I didn't really tell anybody much he was coming in because then all of a sudden you have other people, you know, getting in our way. And we had, you know, a long time, but we had a very specific amount of time. And so I didn't want him to get pulled away. Uh, and, you know, everywhere I went, people started tweeting, that'll do, pig. You know, <laughs> oh, my God. But, you know, and, and people were very excited to see him. And I told them that and that's probably while he was shooting still mine uh, here. Uh, I saw him at a, a grocery store around the corner from where I live here. And he was buying, he looked like he's yeah, vegetarian. And I think he bought everything in the vegetarian section. He was bought it all and he was buying it. And it was so cool to see him because he is so tall and very distinctive looking, walking through the, uh, the, the, the grocery store. And because we're all Canadians, everyone's like, well, yeah. if they acknowledge him at all. But then as soon as he walked by, they go. <laughs> It was very fun. So, uh, and he was, I think I've got a kick out of that story, but you know, he was a, uh, he was a great deal of fun to have him. Yeah. And you don't always know uh, when people come in for an interview, just exactly. Oh boy. Do you ever know it? Yeah. What are you going to get? Uh, although with older actors, you know, they definitely have some of the best stories to tell. So he was working with the black Panthers. Like, <laughs> wow, dude. Yeah. It was great. It was a great story. Yeah, I don't think that's on his Wikipedia entry, right? Like, you know, uh, it, it may be, I mean, there's, you know, listen, he's, he's done a lot of crazy, he's got a criminal record from, you know, sitting in the like tying himself to trees and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he's, and it's the pipeline now that he's, he's fighting against. Uh, but, uh, but to hear him tell the story in that voice, as I was looking at him going, you're the farmer from babe, you're stretch Cunningham. You are, you know, but then I thought, oh, but you're also the guy from LA Confidential. So maybe, I don't know. I don't know. But, it, but it you, know, he tends, you know, when he plays like the guy from LA Confidential, it's not the, the street tough. It's the. Well, no, it's not. He often plays corrupt authority, uh, yeah. like authority figures. Yeah. Yeah. The, the very men I guess he's fighting with in real life, you know? That's the thing. And I mentioned that too. And he just sort of laughed. He goes, I don't know how it works out that way, but it does. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the nicest people tend to play villains in film. You know, yeah. it, you sort of end up being, being capable of playing your opposite. Very interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, he was great. Um, well, what I wanted to share um, this week was kind of interesting. Let's see. Uh, I wanted to share a UFO uh, video that had hit the internet. And I'll throw up uh, on screen share here a little image. And so what we're looking at here is um, uh, this is in Santa Clara, Santa Barbara, down in Southern California. Uh, the video shows a man driving along in his car. Uh, he has either a dash cam or a camcorder on. And then uh, as the, the sun sets in the sky, you see this object flit across the screen. We get a closer look at it. Uh, here I'm going to pull the second image in the series. And you can see right away that uh, what you're looking at is uh, an alien spaceship, but an alien spaceship that quite obviously is like a Hollywood yeah. FX, exactly what you would see in that kind of a movie. Yeah. And uh, what's interesting about this is that this is um, a, a film that was put together. Later on, the guy who put it together came out and uh, admitted that it was a hoax. I'm having to look up his name because it's... Well, it, it, looks like, it looks like something out of Steven Spielberg movie. There was lens flares and everything on it. I mean, it's over J.J. <laughs> Abrams. It looks... 
it looks like it was shot by uh, you know. One of those it's it's a it's one of those UFO videos that screams you know that it's it's been faked and forged. Uh, the man who did it, his name is Aristomenes Sirabas, uh, or Meni as his Meni as his name is. Right. And uh, yeah, he works in computer graphics. Uh, he's a specialist. This was a, a whole sequence that he did with a bunch of students. And um, what was interesting about it was that he released it. Uh, there was his expectation as to what was going to happen with the video, and though what really happened. Right. And I, I find the, the the whole you know exchange of that quite interesting because there's a trick to that video that goes beyond what you're, you're seeing there. The first was that um, you know he released it, didn't say anything about it, waited and saw inevitably you know people were going to either believe it or right. not believe it, or at least say it was sort of cool footage. And then after it had sort of had its run. He then decided to announce that what you saw in that, that video wasn't just fake, but that everything was fake. Oh, wow. The whole clip only uh, existed within a computer. That wow. every component of it, the steering wheel, the hands, the, the rear view mirror, even the sunset, the, uh, the mountains, the, the telegraph wires, all of that were three-dimensional sculptures and models that he'd created in his computer and then had assembled it. Wow. And the point being that computer graphics has reached a point where it's very easy to create something that looks realistic, even right. when you have your eye tell you, well, obviously that spaceship isn't real, but the sunset was completely fake. Well, see, it's interesting because absolutely, I mean, the, 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 the stuff that you can do now with computer-generated graphics, unbelievable. It used to be that water was really hard to fake. Look at Life of Pi. I mean, that's it's unbelievable. Uh, fur again. Look at Life of Pi. I mean, it, like the, that tiger looks real. Um, but I'm I'm wondering now if we are nearing the end of people's interest in it. Now that we've gotten good at it, now that there's absolutely you, it's seamless. I mean, you can't really tell what's fake and what isn't. Uh, I wonder. Um, the Jack the Giant Slayer opened uh, last weekend. As we said, and it did not do well. It cost a lot of money. Made twenty-eight million bucks, which for you know for a, a, a small indie comedy is a lot of money. For you know uh, a movie with no special effects would have been a good opening weekend. But for a movie that cost you know two hundred million plus, it is not good. And um, and I think from what I've seen online and from what I've heard from people, uh, they're just saying, you know what, just another big old. CGI fast CGI arama that doesn't interest us and and I do really believe that I the era of of the big crazy CGI I think might really be coming to an end the CGI houses are going out of business because Hollywood didn't want to pay them anymore um, even though they still seem intent on using them but I really do think that there's something to be said for that human touch that you can only get when uh, when when you're using real actors, so uh, Quentin Tarantino makes uh, Death Proof mm -hmm. four or five years ago, whatever it was, and he wants to have a crazy car chase. Now, so often these days, these crazy car chases are done with CGI. I mean, you don't want to you know risk it with it. Now, what does he do? He straps Zoe Bell to the to the hood of one of them and drives that thing at ninety miles an hour around, you know, up and down. Uh, mountain roads and, and all that kind of thing and and you know what those scenes are unbelievable because there's a real sense of peril in them 
There's a real sense of danger in them. If that had been CGI, your eye tells you somehow, I think, that it's CGI. Even if it looks realistic, your eye knows that there, it's not organic, and it doesn't have the same oomph. And I've seen it, like, Chris Nolan's not a big fan of CGI. He only uses it when absolutely necessary. And the Batman movies have a different feel than the Transformer movies or the Spider-Man movies, which use a lot of CGI, or, you know, so many other movies that are so computer-generated uh, uh, visually uh, with, with effects. They don't have the same oomph as, you know, people. Well, really? because a computer animator has never hung off the roof of a car going 90 miles per hour. Yeah. And so it's hard then to try to create and imagine what that would be like and, and animate that. Yeah. Uh, and so I think there is a value towards having real life people kind of do those when you can. But that ties into this story really quite well, because the, the life of this video did not follow the expectations of the, the, the guy who put it together. Right. His real... Uh, hope was that yes, there would be a lot of interest in the video initially because it might be you know somebody capturing a UFO, yeah, but then yeah. there would be a second wave later on, a real aha moment as people <gasps> realized that none of it was real, that the whole thing was done in computer graphics. And he said the response was the exact opposite. No one got beyond the very first stage. Right. That you know people that he had in terms of comments from people who saw it online. It was, you know, immediately people either believed that they were aliens and didn't really care about the second video that showed all the, the wire um, framing that was done. They were conspiracy theorists who simply wanted him to admit that he was hired by the government to do right, these yeah, videos, yeah, to kind, yeah. you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, he had uh, the rationalists out there and the skeptics who were just annoyed that he wasn't explicitly saying, look, there are no aliens. This is one whole big phony thing. And then he said that the media, those who picked up the story, he thought would be a little bit more sophisticated and then would turn into a story about the technology of his video clip, really didn't care. For them, it boiled down to just being another UFO hoax story that it didn't matter whether he had shot this video using a little aluminum pie plate and some fishing wire or whether he'd done the whole thing in his computer the technology didn't matter the story was simply ufo clip turns out to be a hoax you know yeah. we move on that kind of thing yeah yeah i mean i think that the, the speed of uh what happens in the media uh, happens so quickly that you know uh, and, and and it's erratic it's unpredictable i mean who would have thought that, um, you know, the Harlem Shake would get picked up by everybody? Yeah. And, you know, who would have thought that that would have become a thing? Uh, you know, because this uh, story, I mean, I, you know, it's a fairly interesting thing, you know, like, but, but people are just like, nope, moving on. Don't care. Uh, we're far more interested in the damn Harlem Shake. I mean, who, <laughs> uh, it, it to me is unfathomable. And it's, it, I mean, it's harder and harder and harder to gauge what people want harder and harder. I mean, look at, at NBC, which was at one point, you know, the, 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 the granddaddy of, of the ratings, they, they ruled the roost. They can't pay people to watch it. Tell Latino, tell the Latino, I think in uh, the U S beats NBC now mm -hmm. regularly in the ratings. That's, uh, I mean, this just simply is something that would not have happened even just a few years ago, but now, and I, and I do think it's because people just don't know. People don't know what people want to see. No. Nope. Well, and I think the other issue, uh, especially with the story about UFOs, is that you're, you're dealing with when people process information, they tend to kind of project their own interests onto the story itself. And if you, right. you 
reveal something as being very technical by nature. They just don't have the patience for it. There, no one wants to really appreciate the nuances of how this, this image was put together. To them, it's just an image, no different as another image. They only look at it and wonder, uh, you know, is this a threat? Is it real? Are aliens real? Is this something that my friends are going to be concerned about? Am I going to have to talk about this when I go into work? That kind of thing. There really is no desire to want to appreciate, I guess, the art form that this guy is trying to promote or even the technology behind it. Yeah, no, I, I, I get that. I, I think that, you know, it used to be, I mean, we're going back a long time now, uh, movies, you learned a little bit about movies before they came out. You heard that there was a huge casting call for The Wizard of Oz. Right. And you heard that, but it, there was, the hype was built up slowly, then it went away. Then you didn't hear anything until the movie came out. And, you know, by and large, you didn't really hear, you know, how did they, how did they get, uh, you know, flying monkeys? How did that happen? You didn't really hear about all that stuff um, because it took some of the magic away. And, you know, uh, in, in a slightly different way, um, uh, Mick Jagger doesn't really do interviews unless they are strictly promotional, unless he is saying, this is my new thing, buy it from me, it says Mick Jagger, and it's nice, and I'll make money from it. That's about all he does. He does very few uh, interviews about his life. Uh, he will never give, when he does, the odd time, talk about his life, rarely ever gives a definitive answer about anything from his past, because he understands that the myth is more important than the right. fact. He understands that it's more interesting for people to create their own idea of what his life is probably like. Probably has nothing to do with what the actuality of what it is. But it's the myth, and it's the same with movies. I think that we've gotten to a point now, like when you showed the, the, the schematic of, of uh, what, how we put this together, I've seen you watch Entertainment Tonight or, or any of those shows, and you see those kind of images on it. It's not new or anything anymore, and I think that people are just kind of like, you know what? It's not that interesting. So the guy's uh, pretty good with a computer. It doesn't. Yeah. It doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, it, it, it. 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 The magic isn't there anymore. I think because we know too much about. It. Well, and with Life of Pi, I think the movie becomes less interesting. The yeah. idea that there might actually be a tiger that's trained in a prop boat in a tank somewhere, and they've got this young actor trying to work with them, would be far more interesting to people than to say, well, that tiger, which is completely convincing, one hundred percent just, you know, it doesn't exist. It's, it's just ones and zeros that's sitting on somebody's mainframe somewhere. Well, yeah, and it's, yeah, it, it is. It, it's interesting because I thought when I saw Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Tim Burton film, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it was a very elaborate scene with squirrels. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, the fur looks pretty good. I guess someone, you know, finally figured out how to make fur on these things. Well, no, it turns out they, they trained 40 squirrels how to do the stuff that they're doing in the movies. Now, that's cool. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, I, completely, <laughs> I completely agree. That, that's just awesome. Yeah. But I, I, I am captivated by the idea that sometimes when we put together stories for audiences to kind of, you know, enjoy that – so, so the stories that allow audiences to kind of project themselves into it are going to be more successful than others. Yeah. Uh, Life of Pi, when I read your review, I felt you, you made a very apt observation, which is that you felt that the success of the book was the fact that people could kind of come up with their own interpretation. It's hard to say that the story, yeah. Life of Pi, has any specific message or point, but that everybody sort of finds their own message within the book. No, I agree. And, and that, that, to me, was 
but uh, far more interesting. I mean, you know, again, it's always that, though. I mean, you know, I, I don't think that visual effects, listen, they're, they're, they're so predominant in, in every movie that gets made now. I mean, you know, so many movies, um, uh, you know, if it's set in Paris, but they, they never actually go to Paris. If it's only seen outside a window, you just, you know, you put a green screen on it, you drop it in later. I mean, there's, there's visual effects in everything that we see, pretty much. Uh, but um, the the thing that will sell it or not sell it is not going to be whether or not the, the Paris looks really convincing outside the back, you know, through the window. Because for decades, you know, brilliant movies were made with car scenes that were the most unconvincing things of the back. That stuff doesn't matter if the story is good. If the story and, and uh, makes you think, if the story... Uh, inspires you somehow. If the story uh, it connects with you somehow, it doesn't matter really if Paris looks great out the window or if the robot looks really real. What you want is a great story that connects, mm -hmm. and and I I just think that's the way. I'm going to I'm just I found a picture of the squirrels. You found a picture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to show you the pictures of the squirrels. So there were. Uh, that's the squirrels in the movie. Okay. And then uh, let me just pull this up here. It says uh, um, there were uh, 100 real-life squirrels in Willy Wonka's nut room. They eventually had to settle for only 40. Senior animal trainer Mike Alexander and a team of four experts spent a total of 19 weeks preparing the critters for their film debut. Once the animals became accustomed to sitting with the trainers, each squirrel was trained one-on-one. -on -one. They were taught to pick up a nut and place it in a metal bowl. The bowl was eventually replaced with a conveyor belt for the film. That's awesome. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Yeah, that's pretty fantastic. Well, I guess that brings us to the end of another episode of Hey All You Zombies. Yes. May uh, I say the end of another fascinating episode of Hey All You Zombies. I agree. And thank you very much uh, for tweeting to us and letting us know what you think. Um, I, I did have another question, a zombie-related question I wanted to ask people and get uh, feedback on. It's not specific to the episode that we just watched, but uh, it's something that occurred to me over the weekend. Has your exercise changed because of zombie culture because of, of movies you've watched or television shows has that inspired you to exercise more <laughs> so you can run away from zombies is yeah, that it well, exactly like what, what really hit me was in the movie Zombieland when they talk about the number one rule being cardio um, and I find it hard if you're trying to you know do a regular exercise routine to be motivated I mean you know the first time that you you decide to you know start exercising each week that becomes a big challenge it's wonderful you overcome it you maybe lose about 10 or, or 12 pounds and then you know two years later it's hard to keep yourself going and it occurred to me that the thought of you know one of the great things is is just thinking about zombies as I exercise it actually helps me kind of push myself a little bit more because I feel you should be in shape for any emergency just zombies is a, is a fun one to think about but even in real life just you know tsunamis and tornadoes and all sorts of things yeah zombies I'm not gonna lie. So it's it's never you know it's not something that you think about. I mean, you've had dreams about. Uh, oh, listen, you know, the Saturday night or Sunday nights, you watch the the Walking Dead, you go to bed shortly afterwards. What do you think I'm dreaming about? Right. 
<laughs> well, you know, the next time that you're on a treadmill, just imagine there's a pack of zombies coming after you, and yeah. you know, that the, the 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 reward of finally getting through your exercise routine and feeling like you're in great shape is the knowledge that you would be sur you would survive. You'd be a survivor. Be, you would not be eaten at the end of it. Yeah. You'd make it into season three and four of of The Walking Dead. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you very much. Please visit us at heyallyouzombies.com. Thank you for uh, subscribing to the channel. I keep getting new subscribers every week. I really appreciate that. Yahoo's. And listening to us on iTunes and Mixcloud. Right. See you later.